0: You're listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast, presented by Brian Dunn, Head of Matheson Employment Practice. This is a regular podcast series for HR practitioners, employment lawyers and in-house counsel, focusing on the legal issues relevant to all companies with employees in Ireland.
1: Hello and welcome. Today in this special episode, I want to focus on the areas where I believe that you as HR directors, in-house counsel and employment lawyers Will be spending most of your time and energy over the course of 2018. And this ranges from GDPR inevitably, to the gender pay gap, to some Brexit related themes amongst others. To help me look at these topics here today, I've invited along the newest partner in the Matheson Employment Group, Russell Rochford, to deal with these topics. But before we get to any of that, let's have a look at what else has been happening in the employment law world since our last podcast in December. For those of you who've been following the Employment Miscellaneous Provisions Bill 2017, and this is the legislation that will prohibit the use of zero-hour contract in the Irish workplace, the legislation isn't a whole lot further than when we last looked at it in December. I haven't been able to find out from the office as to what the timetable for the legislation is, so at this point it's still fair to assume it will be signed in by the summer. But as always, we'll keep you posted. Secondly, for those of you working in the financial services sector, in particular, if you are part of a group that has UK operations, you would be very familiar with the UK senior manager regime. The closest equivalent we have under Irish employment law is the central bank's fitness and probity regime, though from what I understand of the UK model, it does go much further, in particular in the obligations it places upon employers in rolling out this regime and setting it up within organisations. The news for employers on this point is that, following a recent submission from the Central Bank of Ireland to the Law Reform Commission, the CBI is suggesting that we introduce a similar regime into Irish law that will supplement and sit in addition to the existing fitness and probity regime. And this will include drawing up specific statements of responsibility for each senior manager role and a responsibility map which shows how each of the different roles interact with one another. If this does come to pass, it is going to mean a significant volume of work for employers in setting this up and rolling it out. And from talking to UK colleagues in regard to the UK model, it does take a huge amount of time. At this point, it is no more than a proposal to the Law Reform Commission, which in turn will draw up its own report and make its own recommendations, so it may never happen. Even if it does happen, it probably wouldn't happen for at least another 18 to 24 months, But it is an interesting indication of the type of agenda or regulatory regime
0: that the CBI would like to achieve. You're listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast, presented by Brian Dunn, Head of Matheson Employment Practice.
1: Turning now to the key themes for 2018 and the areas where we believe employment lawyers are going to be spending most of their time. The first one I want to talk about is the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, which is due to come into effect on the 25th of May next. I think it's fair to say that if we each received a Euro for every time we heard the phrase GDPR over the next 12 months, we could probably indeed retire by next Christmas and wouldn't have to worry about the GDPR at all. However, that's not going to happen. What is going to happen instead is that each of us is going to face an increased workload as a result of the changes that the GDPR is introducing. In particular as you will see when it comes to dealing with data access requests. In general terms, the GDPR introduce a number of fundamental changes and improvements to the existing data protection regime. Let's start with the real headline grabber under the GDPR and that is the scope for potential liability. Under the new regime, maximum fines can be up to 4% of global annual turnover or 20 million, whichever is higher. So, Data protection is now a real force to be reckoned with and as a result, as we've already seen, most employers are taking this very seriously. What we're not seeing as yet, interestingly however, is a significant level of employers properly preparing for this and being GDPR ready in advance of the 25th of May next. While there is already a serious question mark over employers using employees' consent in processing employee data under the new GDPR regime, This is going to become a real relic of the past and employers will now have to instead very much rely upon a legitimate basis for processing employee data. On top of this, they will also have to show that whatever means they deploy for this is both proportionate and necessary and employees will be entitled to question and challenge this at any point. That in itself is going to take a huge amount of time in dealing with employee questions. Looking at some of the other practical issues, For example, monitoring in the workplace, whether that's CCTV cameras or internet and email monitoring. These practices will still be permitted. However, employers will now have to work a whole lot harder to show that there is a legitimate basis for doing so and again to show that the means of doing so meets the transparency requirements. That means much more upfront disclosure with employees around what the purpose of the monitoring is and the extent to which the data can be used. If an employer is found to be using data or exercising this right in excess, well then the employee will be perfectly entitled to challenge this and object to the use of monitoring in the workplace. Another area where employers are going to have to work even harder is in regard to their practice around storage and retention of data. Under the new regime, employers will have to be much more transparent in regard to what the storage periods are and what the rationale behind choosing that particular period is. And again, the employees will be entitled to ask about this and challenge it if they're not happy with it. This is one area where we have seen employers do an awful lot of work already, but when you think about it, it's actually going to be a day-to-day exercise. And I think in practice, it is going to bring us to a point where employers are just by default storing and retaining a much smaller amount of data into the future. For certain employers, depending on their size or the type of data that they process, they will have to retain a data protection officer. When you look at the specific requirements of the role under the GDPR and the type of independent function that they must enjoy within an organisation, I think a lot of employers are actually going to struggle to find somebody in the initial period to fill this role. On top of that, data protection officers will under the new regime enjoy a significant level of protection against dismissal or penalisation for doing their job. So I think we're going to see a whole new line of litigation and case law around this where an employer may legitimately be performance managing a data protection officer who they believe is simply not up to the job, whereas the data protection officer, him or herself, may believe that they're actually being performance managed or dismissed because they're simply doing their job. Under the new regime, we will also see enhanced litigation rights for data subjects and employees. And what I mean by that in practice is that if an employee believes his or her data rights and entitlements have been breached, they will now be entitled to sue in a direct cause of action and take action against the employer for compensation. And this will arise even where the employee hasn't necessarily suffered any financial loss. To date, we've only really seen these type of arguments in support of a separate claim but it will now be a standalone claim and there are real concerns that this is going to give rise to class action type litigation being brought against employers and data processors. But the one area where I think we definitely will see the most activity and where over the next 12 months employers are going to be spending the most time is in regard to data access requests. Data access requests are nothing new, we're already dealing with them, but under the new regime it will be a whole lot more work for employers. And the reason for this is as follows. In addition to an employee being entitled to request copies of their data, the employee will also be entitled to ask a series of questions of the employer in regard to their practices around data retention and data processing. For example, the employees will be entitled to ask what type of data the employer retains in regard to them and what the categories of data are. They will be entitled to ask what the purpose of the processing is. They will be entitled to question whether or not their data is being transferred outside of the EU and on what basis this is taking place, and if they're not satisfied that is legitimate, they'll be able to challenge it. They'll similarly be entitled to ask questions around the employer's retention policy, and to challenge that, and challenge the employer's rationale if they don't believe that it is necessary or proportionate. The employees will also have general rights to object to the data processing in certain circumstances, and the right to request the employer to erase or rectify certain data relating to them. And this works in parallel with the general right to be forgotten under data protection law, which comes from a decision back in 2016 against Google Spain, the so-called right to be forgotten case. For me, the irony that I love about the whole right to be forgotten case is that it was brought by a man who fought a 20-year case against the Spanish newspaper and Google Spain to have certain data relating to him taken off the internet. As a result of the decision, Mr Mario Costeja Gonzalez is now known forevermore as the man behind the right to be forgotten case. And how do I know his name? Because I found it on Google last night. And it even includes a photo of him if you wanted to know what he looked like. Overall, these enhanced rights in regard to data access requests mean that the real battlefield over the next number of years is actually going to be the correspondence between employees and employers in regard to the questions and what answers the employers give. In most cases, until employers get their head around this, it will mean the employers having to spend significant time and cost in getting their data protection answers right. And this is one of the main reasons why I think it's going to be a key theme for 2018. If you are interested in learning more about the employment law aspects of the GDPR and how to deal with this in practice, have a look at episode 25 of the Employment Law podcast series, where I spoke to Anne-Marie Bone my partner and the head of the Matheson Technology and Innovation Group on the GDPR.
2: Sir Russell, over to you for the next key theme for 2018. Thanks very much, Brian. The first trend that I will discuss relates to a case from last year that I'm sure you've all heard plenty about at this stage, and that's Lions versus Longford and Westmead Education and Training Board. Before I discuss the trend though, I'd like to quickly remind you about what all the fuss was about because it's fair to say that the Lyons case probably caused the most controversy in the world of employment law in 2017. The case involved a teacher in a secondary school, Mr Lyons, who was accused of bullying by a colleague. A preliminary investigation was carried out into the allegations and an investigation report was produced which made findings of fact against Mr Lyons. Rather than hold a disciplinary hearing though, the employer simply accepted the investigation report and the factual findings made in it, and then moved to sanction Mr Lyons. He initiated legal action to restrain the disciplinary process on the basis that he should have been afforded fair procedures, including the right to cross-examine witnesses, at the preliminary investigation stage, because it was at that stage that the case against him was determined. Judge Eager in the High Court agreed, stating that he was fully entitled to the right to cross-examine witnesses and also the right to legal representation at that preliminary investigation stage because of the seriousness of the allegations and the fact that he could lose his job. This caused all sorts of consternation with employment lawyers and HR practitioners alike because it seemed to fly in the face of the generally accepted principle that fair procedures do not apply in full at the preliminary investigation stage where that investigation is not a final decision on the allegations. Very soon after the Lyons decision, though, we then had two further decisions from the High Court relating to disciplinary processes, which seemed to go against Lyons or to at least distinguish it on the basis of its facts, even though neither of the decisions referred to the Lyons decision at all. In particular, Judge McDermott in both of these cases made it clear that if the initial stage of the disciplinary process is no more than a fact-gathering exercise to get the evidence together, and all that is decided is that there is something more to look into and nothing more, then the full range of fair procedures do not apply. If, however, it's at a stage where findings of fact are made that can then lead to an adverse finding or possible sanction against the employee, well then fair procedures do apply. So these cases seem to clarify that the Lyons case is by no means conclusive authority for the view that employees are entitled to fair procedures at the preliminary investigation stage. It is only if the investigation stage is a fact-finding exercise that fair procedures apply at that stage, and the right to legal representation at these meetings is really only limited to very serious disciplinary cases. However, we're still waiting on either a High Court or a Supreme Court judgment which properly clarifies the position and reconciles the three decisions. It is anticipated, and to be perfectly honest, hoped that we get this clarification in 2018, particularly in relation to when fair procedures apply at different stages of a disciplinary process and also the extent to which cross-examination and legal representation should be allowed even where fair procedures apply. So that brings me to the trend that we see arising out of all of this in 2018. Since the Lions decision we have seen a tidal change in how employees are approaching internal proceedings, whether that be a grievance, an investigation or a disciplinary hearing. Employees now regularly seek rights to the cross-examination of witnesses and legal representation regardless of the process, and we expect to see employers having to continue to deal with this into 2018. Despite that trend continuing, it is worth noting though that we are seeing employers generally succeed in resisting these requests because, for example, they can either show that the process in question is only fact-gathering or that it will not lead to a dismissal. In fact, despite the large volume of cases raising these issues that we see day in, day out, we have only seen one case where an employer had to allow the cross-examination of witnesses, and that was only by way of written questions and answers. While this particular approach to cross-examination has recently been criticised by the WRC, it did work for that employer in that case who got a favourable result. Thanks,
1: Russell, for that. And for any of you who are interested in the detail around the Lions decision, you'll see three particular podcasts that we ran last year in regards to the lines and other decisions, including a panel discussion we had on the three cases and how they all work. The next theme for 2018 is that I think we can expect to see an increased level of trade union agitation over the forthcoming 12 months. This time last year, we had predicted that trade unions were going to up the ante against non-union employers, particularly the US FDI employers, by way of the 2015 legislation, using this as a means of getting binding Labour Court determinations to improve employees' terms and conditions. Looking back in 2017, I think we were only half right. The trade union level of activity certainly did increase. However, very little of this was by way of the 2015 Act. In fact, from what I can see, only three new referrals under the legislation made it to the Labour Court last year. When you add to this the fact that in October SIP2 called upon the government to hold a referendum on the right of employees to collectively bargain in the workplace and to require employers to recognise unions, It suggests to me that the union movement has collectively given up on the 2015 Act and don't necessarily see it as being an effective means of protecting employees or an effective means of promoting trade union recognition, which is a very interesting development and not one that I think the majority of people would have expected. I think it's clear that there is an obvious campaign by the unions to achieve a much greater level of trade union recognition amongst the FDI employers in Ireland. And in that regard, they are going after a large number of employers that traditionally they simply wouldn't have considered a target over the past 20 years or so. What we're seeing in practice in particular is that they're going after a large number of the pharma clients and medical devices clients, and you'll see lots of this in the newspapers. But the way they're going about it is interesting. It's the traditional trade union approach of demanding letters into senior management, be it in Ireland or the US at parent level, requesting the right to bargain and claiming to represent a large number of employees, even if that's not necessarily the case. Where these letters don't get them the outcome they want, the unions are threatening industrial action, and in some cases we've seen them go ahead with pickets. They're also, in parallel, bringing claims before the Labour Court, but under the non-binding Industrial Relations Acts, rather than using the mechanism that would actually have given them a binding determination at the end of the process. And what I think we can predict for 2018 is that this campaign is going to continue, and employers can expect to see an even greater level of agitation, particularly those employers that are the large, high-profile US FDI names in Ireland. The win that the unions achieved against Ryanair in December is without a doubt going to give them a significant boost in confidence and momentum, because the way the unions will rightly see this is that if, albeit after a 30-year struggle, they could eventually crack Ryanair, well then they must have a real chance with some of the large US employers in Ireland. And for this
0: reason, it's one of our key predictions for 2018. You're listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast, presented by Brian Dunn, Head of Matheson
2: Employment Practice. Russell, back to you for the next key theme for 2018. Thanks very much, Brian. The second trend that I want to discuss is again one that made the news quite a bit last year and one that we expect to be very prominent again this year. And that is the use of mandatory retirement ages. These are by their very nature a form of age discrimination and the Employment Equality Acts were amended in early 2016 to basically bring Ireland in line with the rest of the EU uh, so as to permit employers to use mandatory retirement ages provided they could be objectively justified. Last year we also saw a number of high profile cases where employees challenged their employers right to use retirement ages and again we see this trend continuing into this year. In addition to all of that Brian updated you last year in podcasts on the progress of the two private member bills which have been working their way through the legislative process. By way of a recap the first private members bill proposed the prohibition of retirement ages as a matter of law except for employees in the Gardaí security forces and other security related roles so it was really quite restrictive. The second bill though is a lot more balanced as that proposes to prohibit employers from enforcing a mandatory retirement age but only if the employee can show that they are physically fit and capable of continuing in the role for which they have been contracted for. Both of these bills are still at the second of five stages in the legislative process, but the government has been clear that it doesn't intend to oppose them, so we do expect that mandatory retirement ages will either be significantly qualified or entirely eliminated in 2018. We also believe as well that this will help create the sort of social engineering that we saw when the Employment Equality Acts were introduced all the way back in 1998 to provide fundamental equality rights to people with protected characteristics. As standards in health improve, more and more employees are seeking to work longer, and the enactment of legislation this year hopefully will invariably facilitate this and make requests to work longer a much more common occurrence. This in turn will have a big impact on an employer's ability to deal with the issue of retirement and also how they manage employees that are at a senior level uh, within organisations. On that front, it's important to note that the WRC has just this month issued a new code of practice which sets out best practice guidance and procedures for employers and employees in relation to how they deal with the retirement process. Amongst other things, the Code sets out a very useful procedure for employers and employees to follow where an employee has requested to work beyond their retirement age. While the Code is not legally binding in itself, the WRC and courts will of course take into account an employer's adherence to the Code when considering cases relating to retirement ages. Therefore, it's important that employers not only familiarise themselves with the Code and its guidance and procedures, but that you also look to amend any policies and provide training to management where necessary to ensure that you can deal with these requests as they become more and more common. As mentioned, we expect to see a lot of activity relating to retirement ages during 2018, and we will of course keep you updated in relation to the progress of the bill through the legislative process and also in relation to any and all case law that arises in relation to this issue. Thanks Russell. Again, that's something we've covered in some of the
1: earlier podcasts in our news roundup just as to where that legislation is and where it has come from. Interesting to see where it's going to go to though. The next theme I want to look at and the next area where I think employers are going to be spending an increased amount of time over the next 12 months is in relation to Brexit. Brexit is obviously nothing new. We've been living with it now for far too long. But what I think we're going to see this year is that A large number of the employers that have been working on Brexit plans for the past 18 months are now eventually moving from the planning stage to the implementation stage. We're involved in roughly 20 or so Brexit plans at the moment for various financial services and insurance clients. And over the last three months, there has been a very obvious progression from the planning to the implementation stage. So I think over the next 12 months, we will eventually see the employees who are based in London and who were touted to be moving to Dublin as a result of Brexit Eventually doing so. From what we're seeing, is that in the majority of these cases, it is not a huge number of employees. Certainly, it's not the thousands of employees that a lot of the media is talking about. And I don't think there's a single project we're involved in where the number of employees relocating is anywhere close to a thousand. For those of you who are interested in how these plans are actually being structured, it's being achieved by way of a cross-border merger of a UK business into an existing Irish company, with the Irish company remaining as the surviving employer under the European-wide cross-border merger regulations. If the two businesses involved are an Irish business and a UK business, at least on the employment law front, it is relatively straightforward. If, however, the project involves a broader continental European-based business that may involve employee participation rights, and by that I mean the right of an employee to sit on the board and represent the employees, such as you see in Germany and some other European countries, well, then that becomes a much more complicated process because under Irish law and under the cross-border merger regulations, the surviving employer is required to replicate that. So in the Irish case, even though it's not a feature of Irish employment law, an Irish company would have to introduce this facility. That is an extremely time-consuming process for an employer, And in the two or three examples that we've been through with clients in the past on it, it is something that is best avoided. So I would say as part of your Brexit planning and implementation, it should be one of the first questions you're asking, whether or not any of the businesses involved are coming from those parts of Europe that provide for employee participation. Overall, our prediction on the Brexit front for 2018, insofar as it relates to employment law, is that we are eventually going to see this implementation take place.
2: Russell, I'll hand it back to you to finish on the key themes for today. So the next trend relates to the Gender Pay Gap Information Bill, which Brian talked about in some of his podcasts last year. While there is no timetable at this point in time to confirm when it will move through the remaining stages, we do expect that this will happen quite quickly over the coming months because, first of all, there is very little detail in the actual bill itself. But also, we don't expect much debate anyway in the Houses of the Oireachtas because it is so important and because of how high-profile the legislation is. By way of a quick reminder as to what it proposes, the bill will essentially authorise the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission to introduce a new statutory regime. This regime will require employers that have 50 or more employees to provide information in relation to the gender pay gap and the scale of any differences in their organisation. The legislation is broadly based on the equivalent legislation in the UK which was introduced in April last year to impose obligations on public and private sector employers with more than 250 employees in relation to pay gap reporting. Since its enactment, it has given rise to a lot of attention as pay inequality in large institutions and companies in the UK have been reported. Indeed, you probably have seen the high profile resignation this month of the BBC's China editor in protest over the gender pay gap in her organisation Incidentally, implementing regulations have not yet been enacted in Northern Ireland, primarily due to the absence of a functioning Stormont executive, but these are expected to be introduced at some stage this year as well. Gender pay gap reporting is also receiving a huge amount of attention in North America, with pay gap reporting requirements being recently introduced there as well. With Ireland slightly behind the curve though with our legislation, it does afford employers here an opportunity to rectify any unintentional gender-related issues before the reporting requirement comes into effect. It is therefore certainly worth reviewing your payroll and other pay-related data at an early stage to start this analysis. One of the interesting aspects to our gender pay bill is that while the fines under the legislation are only up to €5,000 for an offence which is relatively low in most people's books, The bill does provide for what in effect is a register of offenders, where employers who are found to have breached the legislation will be named and shamed. With the very high-profile global focus on gender pay gaps and also on equality and harassment in the workplace, this will no doubt serve as a much more effective deterrent for employers, given the reputational damage that will follow, as many well-known employers in the UK have already found out. We will of course keep you updated on the progress of this bill and any and all matters relating to it. Thanks for that, Russell. And that's
1: it from us from our predictions for 2018. Looking forward to a productive and busy year ahead. If you are interested in any of these topics or indeed any broader general employment law topics, feel free to have a look at our podcast series on the Matheson website and you'll find them at matheson.com.
0: Thanks for listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email Brian. That's B-R-Y-A-N dot Dunn at matheson.com. This podcast contains general information about Irish law. It is not intended to provide legal advice on any particular matter and is for general information purposes only. You should not act or refrain from acting on the basis of any material contained in this podcast without seeking the appropriate legal or other professional advice. Tune in next time for another Matheson Employment Law podcast. For further information, visit Matheson.com.